0: told, and I am told this in a secondary source, I haven't run it down to primary, but the brother who told me this is typically extraordinarily trustworthy, that most of the pictures that came to us over the years from the Hubble telescope involve a patch of sky that if if you were outside at night in the, I don't know, in the high desert where you could see a lot of stars and stuff and you're not in town with the light pollution and it's not a hazy night that the patch of sky that Hubble can zoom in deeply on would be roughly represented by you holding a a postage stamp at arm's length. So when you see through the Hubble that 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 much of the visible, that much square of the visible sky is dense with stars and galaxies and things that you can't hope to see with any lesser instrument, let alone your eye. Well, then we send the web which lives out, I think, three or four times further than the moon. Yeah, well, the moon the moon is about a quarter million. So about four times further out than the moon lives the James Webb telescope. And I am told that the, the field that it's looking at is about the size of a pinhead or a grain of sand if you held it at arm's length. A, a dot if viewed from the earth. And what the web is discovering everywhere it looks are thousands of previously unseen galaxies in spaces that would occupy the, the surface area of a pinhead, let alone the entire arc of the sky. A biblical world view requires of us. That we see earth, not as the geographic center of God's created universe. Who knows what that is? But the heart of what God is doing in creation is what he's doing on earth. It is on earth that the fall occurred. It is on earth that the redemption occurred. It is on earth where the image bearers dwell. I am reminded, and some of you know this, I had the I had the privilege, as a much, much younger man, to serve for a few years on staff with with one of my heroes, um, the longtime pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, where I served for a few years, was a pastor by the name of Adrian Rogers, and I would contend that if if Charles Haddon Spurgeon is the greatest orator of the 19th century, at least among preachers, I would contend that Rogers belongs beside him for the 20th and early 21st. You can argue that if you want to, but never met Spurgeon, but I knew Dr. Rogers. One time Dr. Rogers was asked about the immensity and complexity of the universe. If if it is the case, because by the way, you know, Romans 8 says that all of creation groans because of what happened on earth. Earth is the centerpiece. Mankind is the centerpiece. We are the only image bearers in this vast universe that stretches forever, and the better instruments we put, the further away we find forever is, and the more there is going on there. Dr. Rogers was asked years before, either Hubble or Webb, that if that's true, that Earth is what there, what there is in terms of redemption and the coming of the sun and all that, then why would God go to all the trouble to create this magnificent, fantastic, highly detailed universe beyond at that time, and probably at this time as well, beyond anything we've ever seen? Why would God go to all that trouble? Dr. Rogers' response was classic Adrian Rogers. His response was, what trouble? What trouble? Do you you mean to imply that it was difficult for him? Because it isn't. The first part of our study tonight deals with the infinitude of God. The infinitude of God. Inevitably, we will touch probably on at least some mention of his omni-attributes, but those come later in our study. So I'm going to try not to stomp around in the omni-attributes of God. We'll get to those. But just his sheer measurelessness. Genesis 1-1 Says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Start there. The quickest way to a collapsed biblical worldview, the quickest ramp to not thinking biblically about any number of topics, is when something other than the Genesis narrative is your explanation for how the universe came to be. If you believe something that you saw on Discovery Plus, or Nat Geo, or for all I know, the sci-fi channel and the guy with the weird hair talking about the alien. (laughs) If you believe that that's where you get truth and that you must conform your scriptural understandings to that, your worldview's in trouble. Trouble the foundation on which you are standing is styrofoam, not concrete. God as sovereign creator is where we start. Universe as his creation is where we start. Which means that no matter how big we find out the the heavens part of heavens and earth is, he's so big that he created that by command of his voice, essentially instantaneously, simply because he chose to. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you get, if you get that driven into your understanding, then a lot of what he wants you to know about himself will follow on that pretty naturally. Psalm 19 is one of my favorite Psalms. Um, verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see it, don't you? Sunrises, Saharan dust, sunsets. Whoa. Thunderstorms, y'all may have seen the story that a house on Fallen Ridge Drive, um, one, well actually it was a week ago tonight, had a lightning bolt blast a hole in the roof, set the attic on fire. That house is two houses down from mine. Um, When I was on my way home last Wednesday night, Gail texted me and said, you're not gonna be able to park on our street. There are about nine fire trucks stretched out on our street, and the fire chief's car is on our driveway. So park where you can and walk on home. I don't understand all that motivates him. Glenn, you and I were having some of this conversation a little while ago. I do not understand all that motivates him, but I do know that there's no such thing as a lightning bolt that makes him go, whoops, what just happened? (laughs) He has never once from eternity past, and he will not again, he will not till eternity future, say, whoops, what just happened. He just doesn't. The heavens declare <clears throat> the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now you can't You can't see enough, Romans 1 tells us, you can't see enough in his created order to be saved based on what you learn from his creative order. But you can learn enough to know he's there. That's a synopsis of a couple of verses of Romans 1. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, that is the voice of the, the sky, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber like a strong man runs its course with joy it's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them there's nothing hidden from its heat i you know what i bet i bet the sun will rise tomorrow i'm reasonably confident that i've spotted a pattern And it seems to be the case that the sun rises in the morning, at least so far. But do not believe that the sun will rise on southwest Florida in the morning simply because of the Earth's rotation on its axis. Not unless you believe that the Earth can rotate on its axis on its own. And the sun can be positioned the right distance from the Earth on its own sun will rise tomorrow morning in Southwest Florida if it does, because the living God has willed for there to be one more time for us to say, this is the day the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. The sun will rise tomorrow in Southwest Florida because he says it will. <coughs> the infinitude of God is, is thus demonstrated and illustrated in space. I've chosen five characteristics of his infinitude. I could have done twice as many or three times as many, but these are the five that I've chosen. His measurelessness, using using the measurelessness of space. that's That's the best example we have to somewhat concretely consider that which is infinite, right? Because it's that which is in our universe, which is infinite, is the volume of well, the universe. <coughs> he also is possessed of infinite love. Ephesians 3. And I did not stick tabs in my Bible for tonight, and I should have, because I'm going to be all over the place. But that means I just won't get there way faster than you do, maybe. Ephesians three fourteen <coughs> through 19. of his love what is the the measureless volume of his love and to know pardon me and to, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of god knowledge is good Notice it doesn't say love that supersedes knowledge. It doesn't say love that is serving in the place of knowledge. We are to know and understand the word of God. But we also are to experience his love. And be staggered by it. When we look at other characteristics, as we will, his his justice and his wrath, His utter, polished, perfect holiness. If you think the love of God for you is unsurprising, you're not being honest about who you are, or you're very uninformed about who he is. The love of God should surprise you in a rolling way. I don't mean that it's new information, but that it's, One more time he's loved you. One more day he has loved you. He, if you're his, he intends to string together an eternity of those. We define love around here as an unconditional self sacrificial commitment to the well being of another. Have you figured out yet that that's hard? Are you married? Have you figured out I'm not I'm not questioning your love for your spouse if you're married, especially if you're sitting in here with your spouse. (laughs) Unconditional is hard. Self-sacrificial is hard. Why should I have to get up and get your coffee? I thought by now it would be your turn to get mine. Why should I have to bear that burden? I thought by now you'd have some ability to handle that one on your own. Don't repeat me, Richard. You're going to get me in trouble with Bev. You're in enough trouble with Bev. I don't need to. We push our limits to get to unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Sometimes we fail. He's not pushing his limits, for he is limitless, and he does not fail. You know what I know about you, child of God? Tomorrow, you're going to mess something up. Tomorrow, you are going to one more time fail to live sinlessly. Not suggesting that tomorrow is the day you finally rob that bank. I'm not suggesting that Tomorrow is the day you do something that's going to eventually land you on a Dateline episode. I hope that's not. I have a real morbid fascination with Dateline. I never saw a show that's entirely about how to kill your spouse in their sleep. (laughs) If Gail ever dies in her sleep, I'm going to be arrested and prosecuted. I certainly hope she doesn't. You're going to mess up tomorrow. And again, if if you see... If you, if you hear that as a specific accusation, or worse, if you say, how does he know that about me? I'm doing quite well, thank you. That is an indication that you aren't. That's an indication that some of your understandings are badly bent. But if you're his child this time tomorrow, he's going to love you every bit as much as he does right now. Length, breadth, height, depth. And your mistake, which may need addressing, may result in chastisement. Decent parents who love their children sometimes correct their children in quite unambiguous ways. And you may land yourself in a situation where he has to correct you in an unambiguous way. Even that, however, is an indication of his love. And because it's infinite to start with, this is good news if you're working yourself into a frenzy trying to earn his love. He's not going to love you one bit more tomorrow than he does right now, no matter what you do. You can't increase the infinite by your effort. And his love for you is infinite. He will not love you any more or less tomorrow than he loves you right now. He just won't. So anything you're doing to earn his love, stop. Stop. It's not his idea. Anything you're doing because you feel that you're glorifying him and obeying him by doing it, rock on. May you do it tirelessly, whatever it is. But if you're on some sort of religiously fueled treadmill and somebody keeps turning up the speed control, hop off and rest in his love. Which is, in fact, infinite for you. Second characteristic that I've chosen to to look at is his infinite grace. Turn back a few pages to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That is, we are more aware of our propensity to sin because of the existence of the law. But where sin increased grace abounded all the more I sometimes counsel people who feel very insecure in their relationship with the Lord and I get that people who are people who are wired <laughs> who are wired or whose life history or whose background and Again, wiring kind of sets them up to deal with insecurity. No need to be unkind to such people. But a question to ask someone who feels insecure about their relationship with the Lord is, how 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 good would you have to be to feel secure? Your insecurity must be based in some awareness of your own many sins and failure, how how good, how good do you have to be to feel secure in your salvation? Give you a hint, you've never been that good. And what Romans 5.20 is saying is where you sin, grace outruns it. Your sin cannot outpace the grace of God for the child of God. He has already positioned you as one who is innocent before Him. He does that at the moment of the new birth. I will talk about that, actually, in a few minutes tonight. Can Christians sin? I'm glad I'm getting a laugh instead of any attempt. That's almost not a serious question. Um, if you think the answer to that is no, I wonder what you must think of yourself. We, we create environments like, like church discipline so that we can, we can tug one another's leash when something is visibly and badly out of, out of whack. We love each other enough, if you are familiar with the McGregor Covenant, of which you are a part if you're a member of our church. We've committed... To to say to one another, look, I care about you enough to come to you and say, I'm seeing something in your life that doesn't make sense to me. Can we talk? That's a good thing. But in terms of our standing before God, where sin abounds, where there is abundant sin, grace more so. Because he who spared not his own son, Romans 8, but delivered him up for us all will also with him freely give us all things. Now, that doesn't mean the very newest BMW and a house with nine bedrooms and seven bathrooms, unless you're into that. More power to you if you are. That's not the all things. Nothing in Romans 8 is talking about material prosperity. You can't inject that into Romans 8, unless you're just violating the text. But everything that matters forever has been squared away forever because of infinite grace. And I'm glad because I have a a sneaking suspicion. It's the year 2022, and I was saved in 1971. And I have a sneaking suspicion, Steve, that if there were a given amount of grace set aside for me when I got saved, you know, this is how much grace Russell's going to get. I'd have burned through it by the time I graduated high school in 79 and I would be in deep trouble ever since. But that's not how it works. Infinite grace. Third thing I'd like to talk about for a moment is infinite justice. Now, this is important. We have... This idea, maybe it's our American upbringing, for those of us who were born in the States, or maybe it's just the way the the human mind responds to things. We want God to be fair, as we would define fair, meaning if I... What I pay for a dozen eggs is what you pay for a dozen eggs. Publix doesn't move the price around between seeing you and seeing me. They're more fair than that. We want that. But if you you will give me, if you will acknowledge to me that God is in charge, then you already understand that God is not fair. I was not born in December of 1961 in the Soviet Union or the Ukraine. I've got some real issues with my own government right now. But I was born in the United States. On the day I was born, somebody was born in Rwanda. Somebody else was born in the Congo, and somebody else was born in Eastern Europe, and somebody else was born, well, any number of other places. I was born to the parents that I have who love Jesus and were telling me about Jesus and singing to me about Jesus before I could even follow the words. And a whole lot of people weren't. And if you say, well, God's not in charge of that, well, you just violated the thing that I said you have to accept. If God's not in charge of that, then you don't hold to the a God who's in charge. And if God is in charge of that, you already know he's not fair. But let me tell you what he is. He's just. He's just. And when all of eternity is, when all of the story arc of planet Earth, from its creation to its passing away in fervent heat on the day of the Lord, he will be found to have given no one a worse deal than they deserve. Not if you understand what we inherit from Adam and who, who we are. And that can be a bit harsh. Justice is often harsh. Don't think of God as fair. You will frustrate yourself. The law of averages says that probably sometime between now and the weekend, one of us in this room is going to pick up a nail in their tire at the worst possible time and end up running on the rim somewhere and having to call AAA or somebody else because of a nail in a road that's going to get your tire, and the rest of us aren't going to get a nail in our tire. Please don't try to tell me God is fair. Please don't try to tell me that God is not sovereign over where nails are, unless you're prepared to tell me what other areas he's not sovereign over. You can't tell me you didn't deserve a flat tire, or the discussion must be, in fact, you don't deserve a car. Who do you think you are? Psalm 89, verses 12 through 14. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, two mountains located in the north and south of Israel. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. <clears throat> Verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He is utterly just and often gracious. That's different than fair. That's different than fair. And you will frustrate yourself and mischaracterize his character if you don't understand that he is just and gracious, but that he's not fair as you and I would define it. Does that make sense? When you get into the infinitude attributes of God, by the way, you kind of go to the deep end of the pool and swim around a bit. Um... Another thing that's true about him that's infinite is his infinite wrath. He demonstrates his glory. And remember, especially from studying the Gospel of John, that in the Gospel of John, as well as some other places, the the key idea behind the glory of God is his revelation of himself as he is. When we say that we want to glorify God... We don't mean just say good things about him. That's praise. Glory is his revelation of himself as he is. And that includes infinite capacity for wrath. Given his infinitude in creation, given his infinite love, given His infinite grace. It is treason of the highest order to do with him what most of mankind does. The fact that most of mankind does it isn't terribly relevant. To worship something from the creation rather than the creator. And that is the fallen human condition. Romans 2, verse 5. Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. You You can store it up for yourself because he's got an infinite reservoir of it, on the day of wrath, <laughs> pardon me, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Revelation 20:15 That is a cool ringtone. Funny thing is, I hear the ringtone, but I don't see anybody moving. Oh, is it yours? This is, I'm, this is the Bible, and every once in a while, him. Brother, are... I do not mean to call you out. I love it. Um, <laughs> well, you know that good music just wants to punch on through. Um, <laughs> Revelation twenty fifteen, and if anyone's, this is at the end of things. After all, the judgment is said and done. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that is not found to be among the born again. He was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm always puzzled. When I hear somebody say, well, you know, Jesus won't send anybody to hell. When repeatedly the New Testament teaches that he does exactly that. His wrath is infinite. Treason Mm -hmm. against him. Is no small thing. I could chase that rabbit quite a ways, but my, uh, another of my friends was in, in a debate one time. I, I watched it either on his webpage or on YouTube. And um, the person opposite him was taking the position that that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were fundamentally different in their personalities, that the God of the Old Testament was quite a lot to manage, but the God of the New Testament was much warmer and fuzzier, so much so that it strained the credibility of the idea of one God whose story is being told through the whole Bible. And my friend said, so you're, you're saying that That the New Testament God is far nicer than the Old Testament God. His opponent said, that's that's what I'm saying. He said, have you forgotten that the New Testament God throws the switch on hell? It's a lot of wrath. Right now, he is patient. He does not have infinite patience. That is not an attribute where he is infinite. And one day it will be enough. Enough. But His his wrath is infinite. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you know why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Because the Lord is scary. We can approach Him freely. We can approach Him joyfully. We can approach Him gladly. We dare not approach Him casually. We dare not approach Him as though approaching Him is our right. Fundamentally within ourselves. We can respond to his invitation to approach him, but we cannot stomp impudently into his presence as though we belong there by right. We don't. I was having this conversation a few years back with a fairly new believer. And the fairly new believer said, well, if I actually believe that, it would be difficult for me not to be telling people about Jesus every day. And I said, hold that thought. And wel- welcome to growing Christianity, right? Welcome to what it's supposed to look like. We are supposed to be bearing. When we're, we, we use, and I've probably done it, I'll probably do it this Sunday. Use phraseology like he came to save us from our sins. But the reason we need saving from our sins is his wrath. What Jesus saves us from is His own wrath, and of course His infinite power. I love the way this is succinctly said (coughs) in Job forty-two. Two. Pardon, Pardon my coughing again. I promise you, I don't have the corona. I. We're still we're still having sinus issues here in 2022 that aren't related to a virus that makes the news. I'm not making light of that virus that made the news, by the way. I know I'm getting some laughs. I've done the funerals, so, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life wondering if I blow my nose in public, the people around me will think I'm threatening their well-being or cough, or sneeze. Saharan dust allergies have a lot of us, or at least reactiveness. Job 40, and by the way, if that's what keeps hurricanes away, we'll all sniffle together. (laughs) Rather sniffle than have to, you know, pull fallen trees out of my yard. Job forty-two, too. Job, by Job 42, Job has heard from God, and he's starting to get it right. There's a lot of goofiness in the book of Job. You have to be careful with the book of Job because there's chapter after chapter after chapter of these long speeches that are, in fact, fundamentally wrong. The word of God is authoritative and inerrant. And it got it right. The book of Job is an absolutely perfect inerrant record of what his friend said. But what his friend said was in large part not right. And you know that if you read the whole book, because when God shows up, he says, who is it that darkens my counsel, by words without knowledge? That's God's editorial comment on those chapters and chapters and chapters of speeches. But by Job 42, Job is about to get his head straight. And he leads with, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He is infinite in his power. And if you want to, stare down at your belly button and ask silly philosophical questions like, well, yeah, but can he create a rock you couldn't lift? That's a semantic game. It's not a gauge of what he can and can't do. But we'll stipulate, I suppose, to his omnipotence. He can do anything. Frustrating knowing that when he doesn't give me my way. Isn't it? Can you admit that too? I freely admit it. There have been innumerable times when I have reminded him, Lord, you can fix this. I even have a couple of suggestions about how, you know, in case you really need my help with this one. I've never had a problem he could not have instantaneously solved. To believe otherwise is to believe in a God that is other than what the Word of God says he is. Now... He does not promise to, in all cases, give me an outcome that I like. But i offer you this. If you're in a season of frustration, and I have been, so I'm about to prescribe for you a medicine that I've taken myself. I confess that I am not an absolutely disciplined journaler. I don't have just pages and pages. I write every day in my quiet time. Some of you might be. But when I find myself in a season where it seems Not only am I not getting my way on some things, it's just I'm not getting my way at all. Start praying specifically and write them down. Start praying specifically. Lord, I wish that this would be this way. Lord, by your grace, I wish this would be this way. Lord, if you could do this for my friend, I wish you would do it. Start writing them down. And then go back and see what he's done. What I found, at least, is there's never been a season in my life where I had the right to indict his affirmative answers to my prayers. He has acted lovingly, graciously, surpassingly in far more instances than he has in effect, said, Russell, I love you, but not this time. But I have a footnote. There are some things he cannot do, and I won't dwell on these. I'll give you these as a side study. If we had a beyond the notes, Brother Mark, for Wednesday night, this would be my beyond the notes from the pastor's Bible study. The journey together beyond the notes, and I'm not asking for that, right? Four things that I find he cannot do all of them have to do with who he is. Number 1, he cannot endure iniquity. Check me in Isaiah 113 and Habakkuk 113. If I wrote those down right. That is, he cannot say there were times during the active raising, I told the guys in sermon planning this week after I heard Chad's story about his little daughter cartwheeling the picture off the wall. I have some little kid illustrations too, but they're from 30 years back because I'm kind of through with the little kid part until my grandchildren are big enough to be little kids in my house wreaking havoc. They're not quite there yet. Did you ever do this when you are actively parenting or do you ever do this if you are that you lay down a principle? You say, look, this is the way it's going to be. And they get it almost right. Or when they get it wrong, they catch you in a good mood. And you decide, you know what, I'm not going to make a big deal out of that this time. That's nice of you. But it's not godlike. You are choosing to endure iniquity against yourself. He won't. He will not relax the standard in any case. In fact, he cannot endure iniquity. To do so would be a violation of his nature. Second, he can't lie. Titus one two says that in plain language, as does Hebrews six eighteen. He cannot lie. What would be his motive? You lie to get something you want by cutting a corner on the truth. I'm not suggesting you've done it recently. <laughs> he doesn't have to cut corners to get what he wants. Omnipotence pretty well covers him in terms of getting what he wants. He cannot lie. I love this one. 2 Timothy 2.13 says he cannot deny himself. That means he cannot act in ways that are not God-ish. That's important. I'll come back to it for a second. And then fourth, he cannot be tempted. I know that Christ in his earthly incarnation endured temptation. I accept that. But God the Father certainly cannot be tempted. And God the Son handled it pretty well. In terms of his ability, his inability, not just that he will not deny himself, but it cannot, he cannot deny himself, um, that, that'll teach you something important, just to chase a rabbit trail within the rabbit trail. The free will of a being with a will is constrained by that being's nature. Surely you would not argue that God himself lacks free will, but he cannot decide to lie. He cannot decide to deny himself. There is a boundary around his freedom of the will, which boundary is defined by the nature of who he is. So it is with all free will, just as a rabbit within the rabbit. People ask me all the time, Brother Russell, do you agree we have free will? And I say, well, what do you mean? And often what they're advocating is some version of free will that includes the ability to step outside of the nature as though my dogs can decide to wake up and be cats and they cannot. From the big to the small, Roman numeral two at 723. I'll I'll behave, Mark, I promise the eminence of God, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, the eminence, the nearness, the intimacy of God. A.W. Tozer wrote a classic work, The Attributes of God, and in Tozer's chapter on the eminence of God, he gives a metaphorical illustration, and like all illustrations, it'll it'll break down somewhere if you push it hard enough, but Tozer describes the, the eminence of God who is, huge as as putting an empty bucket in the ocean and in that moment the bucket is in the ocean and the ocean is in the bucket now i admit that's a that's a that's a pretty brute force illustration it's not a polished illustration but it's not half bad <clears throat> to understand that god dwells with us and in us and near us The word became flesh and dwelt among us, according to John 1.9. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. I've grabbed that from James 4.8. But that phraseology occurs all over the place in the scripture, the idea of drawing near to God and that he will allow himself to be there when you draw near to him. The one main place where he did that, the place where he demonstrated his nearness to us was his time among us on earth. And the place where he paid the price, the place where his infinite wrath and his infinite mercy cross paths is the cross. The theological term is atonement, payment, making things right. The atonement of Christ on the cross is a historical work of Christ. A once for all, complete and entire payment for the sins of sinners. In our personal experience with him, and it's because the atonement, as an historical event, happened quite a while before you were born, unless you're way younger than you look. Way younger. Two things arise from that atonement that Tozer lists separately, but then he admits they happen at the same time. Though I like Tozer's treatment because these are two different things. For those who come to faith in Christ, for those who are who are brought to the benefits of that atonement, we receive immediately two things. One is regeneration, and the other is justification. Both are instantaneous at the point of salvation. In that sense, both are simultaneous. But they are distinct. Regeneration is the replacement of your dead stone heart with a living heart, the passing from spiritual death to spiritual life, the transformation in nature, such that what you once were, you are no longer. That is regeneration. Some faith traditions teach that that regeneration (coughs) puts you on a path where ultimately you can behave well enough That God will throw his arms around you and claim you eternally as his own. That view is is an infused righteousness view, that regeneration makes you a so much better person that God can like you now. That's wrong. Because there's a separate work that's done in the atonement, not just the work of regeneration, which, by the way, is very real. You're not a new creature. You're not in Christ, right? But if if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. If you're not a new creature, then what do you conclude? You're not in Christ. The other thing that you get is justification. Justification is a a forensic term. It's a legal term, at least as the New Testament uses it. Your justification is the full, final, beyond appeal, beyond revocation, Declaration by the one court in the universe which nothing can reverse. Your declaration of eternal innocence. Some have said, oh yeah, it's just as if I'd never sinned. It's better than that. It's not simply that you never sinned. It's that you sinned and he bore the burden of it. And if you are justified by His infinite grace, and if you know Him, you are. That's why we often speak of both the eternal and transformative character of salvation. The eternal character of salvation is tied up in justification. The transformative character of salvation is tied up in regeneration. And every believer, when they come to be a believer, gets both. You won't get it perfectly right on the regeneration side. But he has gotten it perfectly right on the justification side. And that's a really, really good thing. And because of that, you're his. And you know him. And you are the bucket in the ocean. The ocean around you is enormous beyond your ability to measure it. But it's also within you in a close and imminent way. He is near and he cares. His love is focused. You know, when you when you prayed this morning or when you pray tonight, you will have his undivided attention. And you say, well, that's, that can't be right. There are probably hundreds of thousands or even millions of people praying at the same time I am. You're probably right. How big is one one millionth of that which is infinite? What's what's infinitude over a million? If If I remember my eighth grade math, it's still infinite, right? When he is paying attention to you from his infinite capacity to listen to you and care about you, it doesn't matter that thousands and thousands of people are talking to him at the same time. His attention is undivided on you. You've got him. You've got him the same God that spoke into existence the thousands of new galaxies that the Webb telescope is finding, has said, call to me and I will answer. He's very, very near. The takeaway for tonight, and I'm done. Don't, don't lose your understanding of his nearness and intimacy in your understanding of his immensity. But don't lose your understanding of his immensity in your love for his intimacy. Instead, hold both truths and realize <clears throat> if you ask him just, just, just how many craters are there on the surface of Mars, he knows that. More easily than you can answer how many fingers are on my right hand. You're not omniscient. You have to look down and count. He doesn't have to count. He's got it front of mind. He's got everything front of mind. That that living God has bled and died so that you can know him if you're a child of God. We'll have a long way to go in this study. There are lots and lots of really amazing things about him that are true ahead. But I thought in the very first night, we'd go from the the biggest to the smallest to kind of frame up the subsequent conversations. Let me pray and then we'll go. If you've got a kiddo in the kiddo stuff, be patient, right? Don't go out there and say, we're done so you have to be done. They're working curriculum and all that sort of stuff. Be patient.